Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? Doing well. Did you watch the United States win in the World Cup today? I got to watch the last five minutes Oof. of it when I got home from work. The it was last hi- five minutes of stoppage time. It was highly stressful at that point. It, uh, it was. Yeah, it was. It was fun. I always love to watch the World Cup. Uh, I'm, I'm working at home, so I can like have it on behind me and like catch glances in, in ways. Uh, so that's that's been nice. But uh, we have a good show today. Um, first of all, we are going to be talking about two different people who filed to run for statewide office recently. Jasmine's going to talk about the first Democrat who isn't Andy Bashir who filed to run, which is Pamela Stevenson, who is now going to be running for Attorney General. Of course, Pam's been on our show several times before uh so we know her pretty well but jasmine's gonna update us uh about her race her run and tell you all the things you need to know I'm going to be talking about another governor, another uh, gubernatorial candidate on the Republican side. This man's name is Alan Keck, and he is the mayor of Somerset. We're going to talk a little bit about him and and kind of what chances he stands in that race. And we have a guest today, two guests, actually, Lisa Sobel and Aaron Kemper, who are involved with a case around uh, abortion rights in Kentucky that involves um, their attempts to utilize Kentucky's Religious Freedom Restoration Act to overturn some of Kentucky's laws. It's it's a case that's really interesting. They're both Jewish. They talk to us about the connections between their Jewish faith and, and abortion rights, uh, just kind of the the, the path uh, towards parenthood that many families have to take. Uh, you know, I've shared my story many times, but uh, Lisa's story is not altogether different uh, than ours. So, you know, just these these stories are, are, are wild. I felt like it was a really good conversation. I also really appreciate, Jasmine, you being willing to hang out after they hung up and we talked about IVF for like another 20 minutes, which is a thing that happens to me on a regular basis. So, Jasmine, well, how did you think the conversation went? I thought it was really good. It was super educational and informative, but also really personal. And, and Lisa shares her personal story to point out the different points in which Kentucky law makes IVF and pregnancy difficult or impossible for people. Um, And so I learned so much from both of them. And, you know, I think it's also worth pointing out that with most abortion lawsuits, I was thinking about this just in our first question that most of the time it's it's the hospital suing um, and it is rare for individuals to sue and, and put their names on this and so I think these three women um, Lisa Sobel, Sarah Barron and Jessica Kolb are incredibly brave to do this and, and share their stories as part of this and I thought the interview was really good. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, so definitely stick around and listen to that. Uh, it is a really powerful conversation but Uh, We have lots of other stuff to talk about. So, Jasmine, tell us what we need to know about Pamela Stevenson. All right. So, you know, shortly after we recorded a crossover podcast episode about uh, Democratic candidates for state office, we we got our first one that filed. Um, So State Representative Pamela Stevenson has filed to run for attorney general, and she issued a release on Monday morning. And her release said that she's been a chief prosecutor, criminal defense attorney, international community builder, and operations law expert supporting air crews in Iraq and working with congressional delegations in the 9-11 Commission on the federal level. She's also a nonprofit leader and a Baptist minister, and she is married and has two adult children. 
In her release, um, she listed priorities of ending the opioid epidemic, stopping price gouging at the pumps, and making sure that extreme laws from Frankfurt don't take away our freedoms. So, you know, Pamela Stevenson is not a stranger to our listeners. She's been on the show, I think, three three times? I think it's three times. We'll call yeah. it three. We'll say it's three. Uh, but we wanted to talk a little bit about her background and, and what she's done in the legislature um, and talk about this race a little bit. So... She was born and raised in Louisville, and she graduated from the Brown School, which if you're not in Louisville, um, that's known as a really good school, right? Isn't it like top ranked? Everybody's got their thoughts about the Brown School. It's a public school, but it also is like application only. It's a very small, very selective school, but it also is like they work meticulously to make make it so that it's like racially balanced and balanced across like classes and stuff. It's a very unique and interesting place. Uh, so I didn't know she graduated from there. So that was an interesting fact for me. Yeah. I, I read in one article about her that she attended Shawnee, but she eventually graduated from the Brown school. She went to Indiana university for both college and law school, and then served 27 years in the U S air force, um, where she was a JAG attorney or a judge advocate. She also founded Stevenson Law Center, a nonprofit legal services firm that offers service, services to veterans and middle-income families. Um, but we mostly know Pam Stevenson for her time in the legislature. She first ran for District 43 in 2018, um, which includes West Louisville, and, and she has roots in the west end of Louisville. Um, but then the district also stretches east along the river and into parts of Northeast Jefferson County, like Mockingbird Valley. So when she first ran, there was a crowded Democratic primary with seven candidates, and she came in second place to none other than Charles Booker, who got 30% of the vote to her 22%, which was less than 400 votes. Of course, we all know um, Booker went on to run for the U.S. Senate in the Democratic primary for Mitch McConnell's seat in 2020, which left an opening in the 43rd district. And she was, you know, she was a pretty close second place in that race. So she decided to run again. She had a primary against David Snarden, but she won with nearly 75 percent of the vote that time and was unopposed in the general election. So that's how she got elected. During her first term in the legislature, she filed bills around um, voting rights, including a felony voter restoration bill, employment issues that support workers, tax credits for renters, and several veterans issues. And she actually had a bill passed that involved creating a new office for veteran legal services and reorganizing the Department of Veterans Affairs, which was one of the few bills, I'm not sure how many, but There haven't been many bills sponsored by a Democrat passed, and she had a bill passed. Yeah, one one thing about that is to say, like, what that says to me is that she's done a very good job of building bridges uh, across the the partisan divide. Uh, The Republicans basically don't have to do anything for Democrats, and it's like 
<laughs> it's kind of like a special treat uh, for a Democrat to get to pass a bill. It's like a reward for for like I don't know doing doing the job uh, in a way that that they work uh, that that's productive. A lot of times, Democratic bills will pass, but with a Republican chief sponsor, and that's been a way mm-hmm. for some of the more uh, you know I don't know people who don't like to work across the aisle as as well um, to get some of their priorities through the legislature. But but this signals to me um, the way that she's willing to work uh, with with just about anybody that's put in front of her. Yeah, a lot of times Democrats do work on an issue, but have to have a Republican carry the bill. Um, but, you know, we we know that she is um, a legislator who is willing to talk to Republicans, be friendly with them, work with them. And so uh, they rewarded her with a treat and let her pass a bill. <laughs> Um, she also sponsored a bill about the West End Opportunity Partnership and has been supportive of the West End's TIF um, that we've talked about quite a bit on this show. Yeah, uh, that's a really complicated story, too. Um, yeah, you should, we, listen to old shows if you want to know more about that. <laughs> yeah, I figured we didn't need to do a whole segment on that again. Um, but after redistricting, the 43rd lost some of the northeastern part of the city and it gained precincts in Shelby Park and parts of Germantown. After the new maps came out, Stevenson drew a Democratic challenger, Robert Lavertis Bell, who was a DSA-endorsed candidate. He came on our show when he was running. Um, he was originally running for Reginald Meeks's seat, um, but due to redistricting, he w- was now in the 43rd and primaried Pamela Stevenson. And the West End TIF, like you mentioned, is a complicated issue. It kind of became a, a central issue um, in the campaign. And I think, you know, Robert Bell did a lot of canvassing and tried to bring a lot of awareness to that issue. As, and he opposed the Weston TIF. Um, but Pamela Stevenson ultimately won by 367 votes. It was very close to the total votes that she lost to Charles Booker by, um, but it was a really close race. She won with 53.8% of the vote to his 46.2. Yeah. I, and I mean, um, I don't want to, you know, cast dispersions on the race that either Robert or Pam ran during that race, but Robert did have a lot of outside funding, got a lot of help from uh, the democratic socialist network across the country uh, and worked really, really hard to win that seat. Now, now Pam was well known by the district. Uh, she was an incumbent, had all of that advantage, but I would say like of the three primaries that she's run, um, this one was like the most fierce. I, I don't think that the race that she ran against Charles Booker, even though she lost was nearly as like tough as this race. And, and this is kind of just goes to show that she has the stomach to handle a tough campaign like this. Yeah, he d- he definitely had support from DSA, and then she had a lot of support people helping her out, um, the you know fellow legislators, and so she they they both worked hard, and she was ultimately able to keep her seat. Um, but just so she's had a, a full term in the legislature now, and when I think about her time in the legislature, I think you've already mentioned one of the things, um, which is her willingness to work with Republicans. And a lot of Democrats do that because they have to, but some of them don't care to do it. (laughs) Uh, Or they try to work with them, um, but may have strained relationships. But she, she really seems like she 
to to make things better for Kentucky, and she really tries hard to connect with Republicans and work with them when she can. I think another thing that I think of um, is her passionate floor speeches. That's something that I think Charles Booker was certainly known for, and I think she's carried that torch. Um, She gave a speech about the redistricting bill um, and several others that kind of made their way around the internet. And she certainly speaks with passion. Um, and that makes sense because she's also a Baptist minister. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And how those two things work together is really interesting and unique too, because a lot of times when you make passionate floor speeches, you know, that means you get kind of cut off of being able to pass bills, but yeah. she's been able to thread that needle where she isn't selling out, isn't being, you know, just very shy and demure and just letting the Republicans do whatever they want. She is going to give some of the most passionate floor speeches talking about why these bills are bad and then still manages to maintain a relationship with the Republicans where she's able to actually pass a bill. I I think that that's that's unique uh, to her. Yeah, definitely. And so now, you know, she's able to throw her hat in the ring for attorney general while still being in the legislature. The other name that we've heard as a rumored Democratic candidate for AG, and if if you listen to our crossover podcast, we mentioned this, but um, the other name is Buddy Wheatley, who just lost his reelection for his House seat. So what do you think, Robert, now that Pam Stevenson has filed for the seat, do you think that we'll see Buddy Wheatley or any other challengers set up a primary for attorney general? I do not think that Buddy Wheatley will run in a primary against Pamela Stevenson. I think that that's unlikely. I mean, Jasmine, you know, my record on predictions is quite bad. So I don't know. It could definitely happen. Um, but I don't think that, uh, you know, uh, uh, candidates who have been in government or held seats before who have a good relationship with the governor now are going to uh, run against each other in a primary. That could happen. I don't think it will. I don't think that that necessarily means she won't have a challenger. I think that it is very possible that somebody who is um, on like the outside of the current structure of the Democratic Party or who isn't close to the governor or has a different vision for what the attorney general's office or who has a different vision for what the Democratic Party should be might enter the race and and run against attorney or against uh, Pamela Stevenson. But I don't know. We'll see. Are you hinting at anybody or not a clue? These people tend to come out of nowhere. So I don't know. I don't know who it could be. That's true. You know, I think she, she occupies like a unique space. You know, she is a black woman. She's actually the first black woman to run for attorney general in Kentucky. Um, But she's also a veteran and you know, her, um, I saw her logo. It has, you know, some Air Force elements and says like Colonel Pam. Um, and and so that's, you know, a unique perspective that she brings as well. On the Republican side, we have Russell Coleman running and he's been racking up endorsements and has a really big head start on fundraising with $483,000. And it seems that maybe he's crowded out anyone from getting in that race, you know, there, there may be some kind of, um, you know, maybe a, an even a more fringy Liberty challenger. I know that the Liberty caucus, I, I guess, um, is trying to get candidates in these races. And we already have Andrew Cooper writer, um, running for treasurer. And, and so we'll see if anyone jumps in there, but it seems like 
Russell Coleman is certainly the favorite on the Republican side. Uh, so Robert, I guess, you know, if this, if this race is, uh, Russell Coleman versus Pamela Stevenson or whatever Democrat, uh, gets in and comes out of the primary, what do you think the Democrats chances are, uh, for the attorney general race? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be really tough for anybody not named Andy Bashir to win as a Democrat in in the next year. Uh, I mean, Andy has a record to run on. He has a name that people are familiar with and people like. Um, you know, he he's got a lot of advantages that Pamela Stevenson and anybody else that's running as a Democrat don't have. But I do think, like, you know, it's definitely possible. Typically, I mean, if Andy Bashir ends up winning in a walk. Which is possible. I mean, certainly it's possible. It's not not outside the, the realm of possibility. It could mean that he has coattails. Um, and those coattails, I think, could really benefit uh, Pamela Stevenson if she runs a good race, which, again, we've talked about she's run hard primaries in the past. I think that this will be a different – a statewide race is very, very different than a state re- uh, state representative race. Um, it, but, but I think if she runs a good race and Andy Bashir turns out to have strong coattails, it's not outside the realm of possibility, although I think it will be very hard, especially since Russell Coleman is such an adept and good candidate on the Republican side who's already raised a bunch of money, racked up a bunch of endorsements, and is running really hard for this spot. Yeah, and and I think that, you know, whoever runs for these state offices on the Democratic side will be traveling around the state with Andy Bashir. And and so the I mean they're they're kind of they're not running on a ticket, but but sort of. Um and so I think that having a woman, a black woman like Pamela Stevenson, um, she's she brings a lot to that. If the candidate is Buddy Wheatley, um, and then you also have Rocky Adkins, who is rumored to maybe run for ag commissioner, um, you have a lot of white men on that tour across the state. Yeah. <laughs> so I like, I like um, having a more diverse group of candidates running for state office, and I'm really excited to see her um, run in this race. Yeah, I think it's meaningful that the Democratic superstructure as it exists in the state is interested in diversifying the ticket. I do think I do know that that was like a key part of, of what's going on. Of course, they're like kind of playing catch up, right? Because Charles Booker was the first statewide um, dem- uh, black Democrat who uh, was nominated to, to run um, uh, against statewide and, and Pamela Stevens will be the second. And just then we will catch up to uh, the Republicans who had Daniel Cameron and before that had uh, Janine Hampton. So so that is that is kind of the state of things. Um, but I do think that that was important to Democrats and also beyond just a race and her veteran service. Uh, Pam is a wonderful person, and I'm very excited to see how she's going to run this race next year. Let's get into uh, a different person running for a different office. Um, Jasmine, we have talked about, uh, you know, everybody running on the Republican side. We've talked about Ryan Corals. We've talked about Kelly Kraft. We've talked about Daniel Cameron. We've talked about, um, I don't know, other people uh, who are running for these statewide offices. Max Wise. We did. We talked about Max Wise. That was That's another one we've talked about. Um, Savannah Maddox. We talked about Savannah Maddox. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've done all these things. And now we're going to talk about Alan Keck, who is another gubernatorial candidate on the Republican side. I can't believe it. Uh, this will be the 12th person running for a governor on the Republican side for in 2023. Right now, Alan Keck is the mayor of Somerset. 
we weren't originally going to talk about him or take him too seriously because we've already talked about so many of these people, but we did have that tr- show with, with Trey Watson last week, and, you know, he seemed pretty high on him. You know, he seemed like he was really interested in what Alan Keck could do. It's definitely somebody, especially after looking into him a little bit, I see why a lot of a certain type of Republican or why the Republican Party is interested in a person like Alan Keck in his future. So, um, you know, he's joining this very crowded field. One of the very interesting things about him, I think it's totally fair to say he's running to the left of everybody in the GOP field. He has a really well-developed issues page, first of all, which is kind of unusual for anybody running for office these days. But it says stuff like that he wants to increase teacher pay, that he wants to protect pensions, that he wants to provide incentives for for paid parental leave. He wants to provide more options for cities to raise revenue and lots of other stuff. He even at some point um, in the coverage of his announcement, I saw that he signaled that he was open to universal pre-K. Jasmine, I support all of those things, don't you? Yeah, you're a big advocate of universal pre-K. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, so he does have like all of these kind of like a little bit more, you know, democratic kind of uh, ideas that he's <laughs> he's kind of running on. But it's it is not all, uh, you know, great for him. He does have many, many more conservative, more Republican stances. He wants to get rid of the income tax, which he calls punitive. That's not a democratic stance. Um, he uh, wants to put a school resource officer in every Kentucky classroom. Now, there are some Democrats who support that, but I don't think that that's the center of the Democratic Party. I don't think that's a typical Democratic position. And there are lots of other kind of like more right-wing ideals on his platform. So he isn't, you know, Bernie Sanders disguised as the mayor of Somerset or anything like that. Um, But, you know, he does kind of present a different vision than a lot of the other people running for, for governor on the Republican side right now. His platform, I don't think, would have looked out of step with any Democratic candidate running between, you know, the 60s and like the 2010s. And really, even now, like, I wouldn't be surprised if the next Democratic governor, gubernatorial candidate has something that looks very similar, except for maybe the income tax thing as they're the stances that they support. Uh, so, you know, that that's Alan Keck. Another thing about his race is he's running this very open race. Uh, Like I said, he has this well-developed issues page where you can see very directly what he wants to do as the governor. And on his website, you can actually directly submit a question to him, and he will try to answer it personally. That was kind of cool. Apparently, he's already answered about 50 of them. There's a counter on his website, and I think yesterday it said 48. Maybe two more people have asked him. Maybe he's up to 50. I don't know. Uh, But I thought that was cool. I mean, that's a cool idea. I, 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 I don't know. What do you think? Would you ask Alan? Keck a question, Jasmine? Are you, are you typing his, his website into your address bar so you can ask him a question now? Uh, I wasn't going to, but I don't know. Maybe I'll think about it now. <laughs> All right, you should. You should think about a question. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think you're right that we we may not have talked much about him and, until we talked to Trey Watson. Um, you know, we, we talked to a Republican because we're like, maybe, maybe we don't know how this is going. And I I learned a lot in talking to Trey and, you know, maybe he's someone we should be looking at. Maybe he may not win the primary, but he may have influence over it. Yeah, well, well and, and I, I have my own thoughts on that, which we'll get into later. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit about his background. Um, Alan Keck was just reelected to his second term as the mayor of Somerset. Both of the times he was elected, he defeated Eddie Girdler, who had been mayor for three terms. He actually unseated him um, four years ago. 
And then in addition to the 2022 and the 2018 races, Alan Keck faced Eddie Girdler in 2014, um, but lost that time. That was uh, Eddie Girdler's last term as mayor of Somerset. Alan Keck is in his mid-30s. When he first ran for mayor, he was just 28 years old, which that's that's pretty impressive. Wow. Um, so, uh, personally, Alan Keck is married to a woman named Tiffany. They have three daughters between the ages of four and nine, whose names all start with the letter O. That's cute. Um, he touts his Baptist faith and his connection to First Baptist Somerset and to the KBC, the Kentucky Baptist Convention, uh, their policy arm. He was also on the National Council for the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. That's kind of wild. Um, so, that's like a huge Jewish advocacy, right, right-wing Jewish advocacy group um, that has become increasingly enmeshed with the Republican. Republican Party over the past decade. It used to be much, much more bipartisan. Um, but that that's just kind of an interesting uh, aside about Alan Keck. Um, before running for office, Alan Keck was the general manager of Somerset Recycling Center, which is a company that's owned by his father. On our show last week, Trey Watson intimated that Keck would be able to support his race with some funding if needed. Uh, so, you know, Perhaps he has some family money um, tied up in the recycling services company. Um, Allen is not the only political person in the Keck family. His brother Michael ran in the 2016 primary for the 15th district Senate seat, um, which was eventually won by Eddie Girdler's cousin Rick. So that's kind of how it goes uh, in these towns in in Kentucky. You know, somebody. I, I mean, my my wife is from a small town, and you run into somebody with a last name, you're like, oh yeah, they must be from around my town or something like that. Mount, Mount Washington probably had some names that were like that that were. Like like all mm-hmm. over my favorite example we have a friend from western kentucky lyon county um and there was a candidate for treasurer i don't know probably 15 years ago at this point whose name was todd p pool and uh they were like oh yeah that guy must be from lyon county where else are the p pools gonna be from yeah i remember todd people yeah uh, i don't know if he won uh or uh, hit the nomination i think he was a republican doesn't really matter okay um so you know when Alan Keck first ran for office, it was speculated that it might have been at the behest of a group called the Somerset Pulaski County United, which sponsored a study to examine the merging of Pulaski County with its cities. And Somerset is, of course, the largest city in Pulaski County. The consultant who did the study didn't even get a meeting with Mayor Girdler. And shortly after that, Alan Keck was working to establish residency in Somerset so that he could run for mayor. So that was kind of how he emerged onto the scene. And regardless of whether or not Alan Keck was tied to that SPC, group. He has governed pretty dynamically, which is, I think, the idea behind uh, Somerset-Pulaski County United. It's a dynamic idea to merge Somerset with its county. Um, Louisville and Lexington have, of course, merged with um, their counties, but there are several other cities and counties that are eligible for merger that have not opted for it, and, and making that step would have been uh, you know, a big, big thing uh, for a place like Somerset. Um, but I do think Alan Keck's mayoral administration has has you know followed in a lot of those dynamic type of footsteps. So for for instance, the city-owned downtown Virginia Theater has a beautiful new sign. Saw a picture of it in my research. It looks really cool. Um, that's where he did his announcement uh, to run for governor. Um, the mayor supported the idea of a University of Somerset. Seems like it would have been a pretty conservative place it talks about how they don't want to indoctrinate people which i guess implies that they're you know uk or uofl are like indoctrinating people um we'll talk some more about the university of somerset in just a second um there are now food truck festivals in somerset which is cool and if you remember anything about local government and you know 15 to 20 years ago food trucks were kind of hard to operate. There were a lot of weird local laws that prevented them that they had to kind of govern around. And that seems like something that, that uh, Mayor Keck has worked at in Somerset. And uh, Somerset even looked into annexing some of the surrounding areas, which is a thing that these cities do uh, 
with some success and, and some failures. But anyways, he's been a very dynamic mayor of Somerset. Uh, that's kind of the uh, approach he's taken to uh, his mayoral administration. So during the 2022 mayoral race, Eddie, uh, Eddie Girdler was again trying to retain his seat, regain his seat. Uh, he ran a really negative campaign that included attacking Keck around the safety of the city's drinking water. Um, there was an itch- issue with leachate, which is like landfill waste that Somerset's wastewater plant like intakes and treats. That's a I, there, there's like big reasons for that, but he was attacking the the safety of their water. Michael Keck, that person who ran for Senate, who is Alan Keck's brother, um, was apparently paid. Uh, from the University of Somerset, which, you know, doesn't really exist and doesn't, like, have classes. It's just, like, this idea that they're trying to develop. He's getting paid $125,000 a year. Um, I think that that's something that might come up in a, in a mayoral uh, uh, candidacy when uh, the, the, the mayor's brother is making that much money from a school that is just an idea and has some support from the city. Um, and even uh, Eddie Girdler even had signs that said, save our city. And I read a commentary um, by uh, Chris Harris, who's a journalist in, in Somerset, who, uh, you know, a lot of this comes from his writings. Um, so big shout out to Chris Harris. He said, what are, what are we trying to be saved from? Food trucks? Uh, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, <laughs> anyways, there was this really deeply negative campaign, and Alan Keck was reelected pretty handily. So that, that's what I mean to say. He faced this tough challenge, this very negative challenge, this very difficult challenge, and re- you know, won kind of going away. I think he won by like 20 points. So it, it's probably fair to say that Alan Keck is one of the more seasoned candidates in the GOP primary. So he's actually lost a race, which is, I don't think, true of anybody else on the Republican side. Um, he unseated an incumbent. Ryan Quarles did that, but I don't know if anybody else has done that either. And he won re-election. So Ryan Quarles, uh, I, you know, he kind of has a similar resume. Um, but, you know, given the high profile and extremely crowded space in the GOP primary, um, you know, it would be tough for him to break through. Uh, but I mean, maybe not impossible. Uh, I, I do think it would be very, very, very hard for him to do though. Um, but you know, because the race is crowded, anything can happen. It seems like he's taking the person that he's, he's taking the race the most seriously from a policy perspective. Again, he had that really well-developed issues page. Um, maybe Savannah Maddox is also taking it serious from an issues perspective. I think she has very deep ideological reasons for running. Um, but you know, the policies that she support are in many ways, the diametric opposite of what Alan Keck is, is hoping to do. So they, they provide an interesting kind of foil for each other in this race. Maybe, um, you know, I don't think, I I think one of the, one of the ways, maybe the, the way I think an optimistic way for, if you like Alan Keck to see this happening is that I wouldn't be surprised if Alan Keck caught, caught fire with younger Republicans from small cities like Somerset and, and created some like really deep ties to them where they're like really into Alan Keck. And, and, you know, that's probably not enough people to win a race, but I, you know, Trey Watson compared him to Jonathan Miller. That's exactly what happened when Jonathan Miller ran for governor in 2007. He had these deep connection to younger voters, especially like college age voters at, at the universities across the state and was able to like parlay that support into support for Steve Bashir and ended up in the administration and had a big impact there. That's maybe one of the ways it could go for Alan Keck. Of all the GOP candidates, Alan Keck is the most democratic. I'm just going to say it. That's <laughs> kind of what I think. Uh, I don't think that uh, I, I don't like that necessarily because I think it does make him a, a tough opponent for Andy Bashir. But I also think it would make him the best governor. So, you know, that's that's good. I think that that's something to uh, 
um, to, if he does come out, you know, and, and manages to be Andy Bashir, both of those are very, very tall tasks, you know, I wouldn't feel as bad as I would if, you know, Savannah Maddox became the governor. Um, so, so that's kind of how I see it going. And again, shout out to the Somerset Commonwealth Journal and journalist Chris Harris. They did a really great job covering Somerset local government through the years. Um, and they also have alternative payment models for their newspaper. So I was able to buy like a day pass to their newspaper so I could get like all the coverage for like three bucks. And I was like able to read all I wanted to about Alan Keck. So that was, that's great. Thank you, uh, to the Somerset Commonwealth Journal for for that option. Everybody else who's a newspaper across the state, we, we want that. That would be great for us to have. Um, Jasmine about Alan Keck, anything else you want to say? No, I don't think so. Well, I think you're right that it is going to be hard for him to break through. So I don't necessarily think he's going to come out of the primary, but, you know, maybe he'll end up um, endorsing someone else that that maybe younger Republicans throw their support to. Uh, maybe he'll end up in a position in state government after or if he dropped out of the race, he could become a lieutenant governor candidate. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think about I didn't even think about the lieutenant governor option. That's certainly something that could happen. Um, and then, of course, like, you know, you lay the groundwork in a campaign like this. He may not win, but it also opens you up to run four or eight years from now. And he's uh, like a lot of the Republican fields still still pretty young uh, and will be around with us probably for quite a while. All right. Before we get out of here, we have two quick hits to talk about. Um, former Kentucky Governor John Y. Brown Jr. died last week. Brown became famous originally for leading the group who purchased Kentucky Fried Chicken from Harlan Sanders. He then married Miss America, Phyllis George, and was elected governor in 1979 after entering the race at the last second. That's a wild story if you ever want to read about Kentucky history. The 1979 governor's race is something to read about for sure. Um, you know, he his governor's administration was mostly fine. I got, you know, fair to mid right, uh, fair to poor marks. I think most of the time. Um, uh, but you know, he was pretty popular most of the time. And he once again ran for governor, you know, eight years later in 1987. And, uh, he and Steve Bashir, who was a candidate in that race, spent most of the primary attacking each other, uh, split their vote. And Wallace Wilkinson became the democratic nominee and one ran, uh, one, running away from that race. Another uh, gubernatorial race to learn about the history of Kentucky. Very interesting time. Steve Bashir and John Y. Brown were never on good terms after that, but uh, Brown did serve on Andy Bashir's inaugural committee as an honorary co-chair, along with all of the other former Democratic governors. And Andy Bashir's office arranged for Brown's body to lay in state in the Kentucky Capitol today. So um, really unique, interesting character in Kentucky's history. John Y. Brown III uh, is somebody who has, you know, been nice to me through the years, so I know that he's probably um, going through some some tough times with the death of his father. So thinking about him, and uh, yeah, uh, if you like Kentucky history, this is a character that you must learn about. Anything about John Y. Brown you want to say, Jasmine? No, I, I think you covered it. Definitely a Kentucky legend, and you know, our prayers are with his family. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, lastly, Senator Ralph Alvarado is leaving the Kentucky Senate to become the commissioner for the Tennessee Department of Health. This was very surprising. This, like, broke as we were recording. I think Trey Watson talked about it on his show, and we didn't talk about it on our I know, we were like, what? What? <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, Alvarado was just reelected. He owns a medical services company here in Kentucky, and he is the med- medical director at several nursing homes here in the state. Uh, maybe the reason that he left is that now the person who calls a special section 
is Robert Stivers, the Senate president, and not Andy Bashir due to a new law that was just passed. So I think that's probably the reason why he went through um, the effort of being reelected um, so that um, Robert Stivers had more control than Andy Bashir. So Anyways, that's a seat with some Fayette County's area. You know, it's going to be tough for a Democrat to win, but not impossible. So something to be something to be looking at for sure in the near future. All right, let's get to our interview with Lisa Sobel and Aaron Kemper. Go ahead. Lisa Sobel, Sarah Barron, and Jessica Cobb are plaintiffs in a lawsuit attempting to block Kentucky's abortion bans. Um, and Aaron Kemper and Ben Potish are their attorneys. And today we have Lisa and Aaron here with us. Um, their case argues that the abortion bans in Kentucky are in violation of Jewish law and therefore violate the Kentucky Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Um, so that's what we're here today to talk about. Lisa Sobel and Aaron Kemper, welcome to my Old Kentucky podcast. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. Yeah, um, I, I, we're both really happy to have you guys on to talk about this very interesting, unique, and potentially really important case here in Kentucky. Uh, the first question is, I think, for Aaron. Um, so we've been talking about abortion bans put in place by the legislature and, and you know, votes on abortion bans uh, that were put in place, or v- votes on those abortion bans that the electorate had, and then different lawsuits that are making their way through the courts. And Jasmine and I have been talking about those things, you know, most of 2022 and really going back quite a ways. Um, and, and, you know, in sort, in sort of this big mix is, is this case. So kind of talk to us a little bit about what makes this case unique. How is it different from other cases that are out there? And, and what does it have the potential to do uh, for the landscape, uh, landscape of abortion rights here in Kentucky? Well, you know, th- there's a lot to that. Our case is extremely unique because we are representing mothers who want to have more kids, Right. So right there, they want to have children. But right now they are scared to try to have more children because currently under Kentucky law, what they need, the reproductive assistance that they need to have more children could be against the law. And just a plain reading, it looks like it is against the law. And so, you know, that's extremely problematic. Um, you know, for example, Lisa's going to tell you more about her story, but, you know, when she was going through, you know, IVF, and she'll tell you more about what that is in vitro fertilization, you know, a lot of her fertilized eggs, her doctor said, those are not compatible with life. But under Kentucky law, those eggs are human beings. So when Lisa made the decision, well, discard those eggs that will never, ever become a, you know, crying breathing air, you know, entity, Kentucky calls those human beings and she could be prosecuted capital offense for discarding those eggs. And, you know, that's, that's just the plain reading of the law. Um, There's been some three advisory opinions issued by the defendant in our case, since Dobbs came out trying to sort of seems like legislate from advisory opinion, which I've never heard of anyone ever doing before to try to maybe say that, well, I don't know about that, but I mean, that's what the law says. So that's extremely unique right off the bat because we keep talking about abortion bans and the abortion laws. But our case, we have three mothers 
who who want to have children. They just they want to have their own children. They need reproductive assistance. So this is whatever stereotype I think exists of abortion. That's not what we are dealing with here in our case. Yeah. And, and before we move on to Jasmine's next question, I did want to kind of pose the same thing to Lisa with, with all this being said. Um, you know, we'll, we'll get into IVF later. Uh, any any amount you want to talk about IVF, I can we can we can talk forever. We can talk forever. Uh, you know, my daughter is an IVF baby and we're in the middle of trying to do another one. So uh, that Agreed. is. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 an arduous process for sure. But, um, you know, I, I guess we, we learned a little bit about kind of the legal background there from 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 Aaron. But kind of tell us a little bit about your perspective coming into this case, why you wanted to file it. How did the idea come to you uh, in, in that? And um, kind of what are you thinking about this and how is it moving uh, in, in your head? And how has it uh, you know, how have you thought about it um, in the past? Well, I would say when the Dobbs decision was released, the first thing I did was call my husband and be like, uh, we need to go protest today. It's at this time. We're picking our child up early. We're going. And as I was standing there, it was sort of like, okay, this is great. And I know that when I vote, I do my research and I check and see what the different candidates stand for and if that's in line with my personal values. So, okay, that's fine. But I didn't really feel like that was going to be enough. And then I was on vacation at the beach uh, a week later. Oh, so relaxing. Let me tell you, because that's all anybody wanted to talk about. And it was sort of like, okay, well, then the Florida case was let out, um, was released. And that is a rabbi in Florida representing his congregation, trying to, um, overturn the abortion bans there. Um, and it was like, okay, all right. And I started talking with Aaron. He and I go way back. We went to Sunday school together. We graduated high school together. Uh, this is a very, uh, connected group I would say, uh, of people because Jessica and I used to work together. Now um, we have our kids hanging out all the time. Sarah and I used to work together on a different front and our kids play together. Now all of the kids play together. Uh, And so we're very connected. And in talking with Aaron and talking with Ben, it was sort of like, okay, so who, who can file a case like this? And, in thinking through all the implications with IVF and the fact that it basically means right now I'm stuck, not able to pursue IVF uh, because of risks, which we can go into later. Um, It was sort of like, okay, I guess it's me. I guess I'm plaintiff number one. What else do we need? Because I keep reading all these books to my daughter about heroes and sheroes and talking about how she can make history anytime she wants. And then I talked to her about our sage and Rabbi Hillel, who says, if not, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? If not now, when? Like, that's the exact line. If I'm not for myself, who will be for me? And if not now, when? So I guess I am standing up for me and I'm doing it now. And then I was talking with Jessica who was like, well, of course I want to get involved with this. Who else do we need? 
And we reached out to our network and Sarah came on board and we talked with a few other people who decided in the end that it wasn't the right fit for them. And that's how this all got started. Yeah. So we want to talk to you a little bit about your Jewish identity. And so like Lisa, I'll start with you and then Aaron, you can jump in and add to this as well, but your Jewish identity is core to the lawsuit. So could you tell us a bit about the Jewish faith and abortion? I mean, within Christianity, there is a wide variety of opinion about abortion um, between Catholics and Protestants and between different denominations within Protestantism. Um, is there a similar variety of teachings about abortion within Judaism? Well, I'll give you the simple answer is it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Overall, yes, there is a unified opinion because of the way that the Jewish tradition is structured. So even though there are different, we don't call them denominations, they're just different versions of the same thing. Uh, we're all Jewish. We all agree on the basic tenets. It's just how many of the 613 laws that are in the Torah, which is for Christians, the Old Testament, how many of those 613 commandments do you follow every single day? If you follow just about everyone, you fall on the Orthodox spectrum. If you're a little bit more laissez-faire, you fall under the reform, and then there's everything in between. And because of this, we have a code of Jewish law. Historically, Jews were not considered citizens of the places that they were living, and they were under their own sort of law, and therefore the rabbis created a code of law that we follow. And in that, it lays out pretty clearly what should happen should an abortion be needed. Um, and it says very clearly that the life of the mother comes before that of the unborn child because until the child is born or the head is out is the technical term, the child is considered part of the woman's body. And for us, life is the most precious part of Jewish tradition. You can break every other commandment there is in order to save a life. Um, the most absorb observant Jews on the Sabbath when you're not allowed to do a whole list of things. If you need to pick up the phone to call EMS or to drive a car to get somebody to the hospital, you are not only allowed to do that, you are commanded to do that. And so for us, the life of the mother, because she is the living individual, is more important than that of the unborn child. Yeah, Aaron, did you want to add anything to that question yeah. before we move on to the next one? Sure. I would just like to add that um, Kentucky law, that is not the case. I yeah. Mean, that's not clear. The only exception right now under Kentucky's law is if the woman is facing imminent death, which leads to, you know, tons of hypotheticals that you exactly. start getting into. What is imminent death? Right now, nobody knows what's allowed under the law. Um, if, if a woman is pregnant, but let's say she has breast cancer and chemotherapy, is it's not compatible with being pregnant. Is that imminent enough? Are we going to start measuring stages of cancer? That's just one of many hypotheticals um, in our client's situation who are uh, who did IVF, you know, along the way. 
Um, they do a lot of screens, a lot of tests um, without getting out. You know, we'll get as personal as Lisa wants to get. But, you know, one of the reasons they need IVF is that they you know, have a more difficult time um, getting pregnant and sustaining a pregnancy. So during those tests, you know, if they find out that the baby's not going to make it under Kentucky's law, unless they're facing imminent death, they're going to be forced to carry a, a dead fetus to term for lack of a, a better phrase. So, you know, that's horrifying. It's, it's against Jewish law um, under Jewish law. If, if a screen shows that that, that fetus is not viable, then you terminate the pregnancy. There is, that's, there is a consensus there. There are the details about, you know, the abortion word and the term and the politicization of it with, you know, pro-life, pro-choice, what does all that mean? You know, that is, those are difficult questions. But what we do know is that Kentucky's law, which provides no exception for the life of the mother, provides no exception for the viability of the fetus. We know that that clearly violates Jewish law and tradition. And I'll give another example, just because I think that sometimes people don't realize. So the first commandment in the Bible is to be fruitful and multiply. And in Jewish tradition, there are commandments that are mandatory for men, and there are some that are mandatory for women. The rabbis explicitly made that commandment to be fruitful and multiply. They have put that upon men rather than women. Because the rabbis recognize, and there is so much discussion in the Talmud about how they recognize, but they recognize that giving birth is dangerous. And therefore, they could not command a woman to risk her life in order to have children. And that goes back to the whose life is more important and, you know, where is life considered? The woman's life is over the fetus. Yeah, this is the best bit of midrash we've done on my old Kentucky podcast. Uh, so, uh, I, I do could appreciate- do more if you'd like, but I figured we'll just do top line highlights for people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I guess the, the the next question we wanted to, to turn back to, to Aaron a little bit and, and talk about a little bit about the RIFRAS, the restoration, or wait, I forget what that's, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. I there forget what the, yes. the letters mean often. Um, and, you know, we, we talked about the RIFRA when it was kind of making its way through uh, the legislature, and we've talked quite a bit about, um, I guess, no, it was predated our show, but we talked a lot, we've talked a lot about RIFRA um, in a lot of different lawsuits and in a lot of different contexts um, throughout throughout the years on our show. Um, but, you know, I guess I, I often kind of consider them kind of like a, a tool for right-wing Christians to do things like attack public schools and restrict birth control, and that's typically like the way I think about them, but I mean... The way that the law is written is obviously quite a bit wider than that, and um, it, it seems like the tenets of the law, as it's written, would would apply um, to to this specific situation. Um, I mean, so first of all, can you, I, I guess, tell us a little bit about this legal strategy? Is it any more complicated than that, or is, is that basically it? Well, we're trying to return RIFRA to its roots. Uh, the first RIFRA was a federal law. Um, and it was enacted in the early 90s uh, after some Native Americans were prosecuted for their religious beliefs. Um, it was overwhelmingly passed with bipartisan support. The ACLU supported the first RIFRA that was passed at the federal level. So, you know, our contention is that this law protects minority religions, you know, like ours. Um, and we think that um, it should apply across the board. Now, 
obviously if it's determined at some point down the road that RIFRA only applies to a narrow religious group who is currently holding political office, um, that's a problem. So, you know, we don't believe um, that should be its only application. Um, we think that religious liberty should apply to everyone. And, um, you know, backing up, RIFRA was also passed because some cases failed under the freedom of religion. Um, and, you know, we brought our case under Section 5 of Kentucky's Constitution for freedom of uh, religion. And we think Kentucky has very, very um, broad application of what it means to have religious freedom and liberty. If you read the text of Kentucky's Constitution, that's from the 1790s, it is always said that you cannot favor a majority religion, people, that people have the rights of conscience and that they have a right to practice their you know, religion freely. So we're trying to get back to the roots of Kentucky's constitution, the original um, intention of RFRA. And uh, yeah, we think it applies to our case. That's why we, that's why we used it. And we don't think that um, even though the people who formally supported RIFRA two or three years ago under COVID are now opposed to us, <laughs> we recognize that, but that's, you know, that's how it goes. We, you know, we think everyone should have religious liberty. Yeah, and I guess taking a step back from that, you know, whenever I think about Rifra as like a progressive Christian, uh, you know, I, I look at it as like, well, this is kind of useless. Why do we have this? This is dumb. Um, but I also am like not prosecuted for my religion. So, I, I mean, I think it, it it is kind of an interesting, I mean, I suppose it's like an interesting thought process for the way in which Rifras are used in 2022 and the fact that, you know, Judaism does have portions of uh, their laws that are sometimes not totally compatible with the laws of the state and, and kind of how that, that works. I'm sure that you guys have much more complicated or much more complex thoughts about RIFRA. So I, I, would, I guess, uh, Lisa, I'll start with you, but kind of like, how do you feel about Kentucky having its own, rest, or, uh, sorry, uh, again, Religious Freedom Restoration Act? Uh, do you think it's necessary? Uh, I mean, what, what, how, how do you feel about these laws uh, as they exist on the books now? I think that for me, it makes sense that we need to come back to the essence of RIFRA. We need to come back to what the Constitution for Kentucky says, which is that everyone, regardless of what their religion is, has the right to practice their religion and that nobody has the right to impose their religious views upon somebody else through legislation, which is exactly what these laws are doing. This is a very narrowly held Christian belief that is predated by Jewish law and Jewish tradition that is in exact opposition. Yeah, and more specifically, these laws state that life starts at conception. I mean, they, they've codified that into the law. And that's really the essence of our case is that Judaism does not define life beginning at conception. And many religions don't. And many different sects in Christianity don't hold that either. Yeah, I I think it's important to talk about like the history of Rifra because it, you know, it, it didn't start um, with, you know, Republicans passing it for Christians. It, it started because of a native American case. Um, and yeah, it, those are its roots. 
So our last question we wanted to ask, um, we, we've talked about IVF a little bit throughout this whole show, um, but both you, Lisa, and Jessica have undergone IVF before. Um, so can you tell us about how the Dobbs decision and the reaction by Kentucky officials have altered your plans for future pregnancies? Certainly. I think that it goes to the heart of unintended consequences from all of these laws that have been patchworked together over the last 20 years uh, without anybody sitting down and asking what would happen if Roe v. Wade was overturned. And what has happened is, is that it has affected the entire healthcare industry in our state and in others. Specifically for IVF, it's brought into question just about every part of IVF that there is. And I'll talk a little bit about my story because I think that, unfortunately, I highlight almost every aspect that's in question right now. So my husband and I are not able to have children naturally the old-fashioned way. We have to use IVF because each of us has a different reproductive issue. And that meant that in 2017 and 2018, we went through two retrievals and two transfers. So we did it. We also have to do it the very expensive way, which is where they take one sperm and inject it into each individual egg. Uh, it's called ICSI. Don't ask me. It's a very long term. And so what you do is now you've created all these embryos. We decided to use pre-implantation genetic screening, PGS, to verify if the embryos that we had created were viable. And what that does is it takes five to ten cells from the outermost layer of the embryo, the blastocyst, at five days before they're frozen and sends it off to the lab and says, are these genetically normal or are there genetic abnormalities? And if so, how large is the percentage of these cells? Um, and for us, unfortunately, even though our doctor said, well, based on your age and the number of embryos that you have, you should have a 93% chance that you'll have one embryo you can use out of the four. We had none. All four were not compatible with life for four different genetic reasons, but all of the cells that they tested showed the different genetic anomaly that each embryo had. So that meant that they would not transfer them because it's malpractice on their part. Um, so then we did another retrieval. We got three embryos. We had already paid for testing up to eight embryos. So we went ahead and tested the embryos that we had. We had one that tested perfectly normal and one that was considered a mosaic, meaning that only a portion of the cells tested were showing an anomaly. We said, okay, great. And you do this type of testing when you're going through IVF because the when you are pregnant and it's happening in your body, oftentimes the mother's body will recognize that there's an issue with the embryo very early on. She won't even know that she's pregnant and she will miscarry that embryo because the body recognizes that it's not viable. She'll probably just have a heavier period and move on with her life. Well, in IVF, it's all happening outside of the body, so you need these tests. 
Right now, the question is, could you do those tests? Because the embryo is considered a person, and that person cannot give you consent to have their genetics tested. So that's issue number one. Then we decided to transfer our first embryo that was perfectly normal, and it didn't take. Now, what people need to also consider when it comes to reproductive technologies is the cost associated with it. In order to get to the starting line of pregnancy, for me, I had to spend $50,000. That's a very nice down payment on a house Mm -hmm. these days. In order to get to the starting line of possibly getting the chance to be a mother. Because once you're pregnant, there's all sorts of other risks that you run into. So we transferred the genetically normal embryo. It didn't take. So we did a second transfer with the mosaic embryo, not knowing if the genetic anomaly that had been identified would actually be part of our child or if our child would be 100% genetically normal. So that now makes me a slightly higher risk pregnancy. And we go on with our happy way. We get out of the fertility clinics service and that very week I start bleeding and it's a question of whether or not I'm going to lose this pregnancy. It turns out I didn't, thank God, but that then put me once again in a slightly higher risk. And we then did all of the normal screenings that any pregnant woman usually goes through. And at the anatomy scan, which happens around week 20-ish, there's a problem. Our child is measuring too small. Now we're at a completely high risk um, pregnancy. We have to switch doctors completely. They don't know what's causing this issue. Could it be the genetic anomaly? Who who knows? It's such a rare anomaly. Who knows what that could cause? The doctors couldn't tell us. Fast forward. Everything is fine. I make it to 38 weeks and I'm induced. The labor goes pretty fine you know as all inductions do it takes time but it works out great but it turns out that um part of that bleeding earlier is probably what also caused me to almost lose my life in delivering my daughter uh within 30 minutes of delivering my daughter i was rushed out of the room being told um that they needed to rush me into surgery to save my life um I wasn't fully coherent at the time because I was losing so much blood. And um, all I remember hearing is the doctor say, you need to get her under immediately. We're losing her, which is a very scary thing to hear coming in and out of consciousness. And all I'm doing is praying to God that he saves my life. I ended up saying the Shema, which is the cornerstone prayer of the Jewish people that you say if death is imminent. So because of all of that, that was very long-winded, I run a higher risk of bleeding out. So for me, it's not just, can I do IVF? And can I test the embryos that I need to test to make sure that they're going to be genetically normal so that I'm not just transferring for $14,000 a pop every embryo I have? Um, But if I do miscarry... I could bleed out before the doctors have enough time to talk with 
their lawyers to find out if they can treat me. And I live five minutes from a hospital. That's how much of a risk it is to my life. I had less than a half an hour having delivered my daughter. So for all of those reasons, I am scared shitless to go through IVF. And my husband and I always wanted more children. We always laughed that we wanted 3.5. The 0.5 is the dog, not an abortion. The 0.5 was definitely a dog. And right now we're sitting at, no, you're stuck only having one child because the law is so unclear that you don't know what you can do. And if I were to create more embryos, I can't discard them right now because I run the risk of a capital murder charge. But I also don't have the thousands upon thousands of dollars that women like Jessica have to have in order to maintain the cryo-freezing of the, their fertilized embryos. Yeah, uh, I will say that there are a lot of parts of that story that are very, like, PTSD for me. Um, and whenever <laughs> you tell any of these stories, too, um, one of the things I know, having had to tell our story so many times, is there's always, like, big pieces of it that you're missing that are just, like, horribly tragic. That are, I mean, and, and losing, uh, like, discovering during the PGS process that you've only, you don't have any embryos after doing a whole retrieval and uh that that's just really devastating to hear because like i mean you didn't get into it but like all the drugs that you have to take and all of the shots that you have to undergo and like all of the things that have to happen and all the scans you have to have and all the ultrasounds and then growing all of the eggs and then doing all of that and that is like the last step before you do the you know uh to you do the transfer and uh yeah that 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 part really got to me and you didn't even mention it well uh, and at the time robert i'll tell you my husband and i were both working for nonprofits. He was laid off right before we were supposed to start. And so we ended up fundraising. We got one grant to do the second round of IVF that we did, but we had to fundraise about 40 of that $50,000. Wow. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, when we did that first retrieval and we did the testing, we were, my husband and I were anticipating everything was going fine. We would get to go on an anniversary trip, come back to a transfer. And so I got the call from my doctor as I was driving to pick up my husband. Yeah. And Jeez. my doctor was like, go on your anniversary trip and then come back and we'll talk. It's like, <laughs> do you understand that you've just given me horrible news after telling me for five days that my embryos looked great and they were doing fabulous. Like none of these are going to be my kids. And I still have to think about that because I wonder with how technology has changed, if they went back and retested those, you know, I would have to, I believe that it would all test the same because those are, you know, all four of them had all of the cells showing those anomalies, but it's just really yeah. It's heartbreaking and you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And the next bill to come. Yeah. It's uh yeah, and and the way that they grade and it, I mean that that's also crazy if you had nice looking embryos that's also just a huge huge part of the process and like you got through all of that just yeah, that's wild. I did have one 
follow-up question about this, and that's that the legislature has often has said many times, like in the midst of a lot of these legal proceedings that are going on, that like, oh no, we never meant to do anything uh, about IVF. That's never our intention. And let me be clear: some parts of the legislature, one or two members of the legislature, who feel very confident they'll they'll be able to get this through without, you know, giving us their vote counts or anything. Um, but but you know, you your story brings up so many other pieces of this, in, including like risks to your pregnancy um, and all that. When we had Roe v. Wade, it was such a clear standard because it was like we we are trusting women and their doctors to make these decisions for themselves. Um, with the injection of the legislature into this process, um, wh- how do you feel about them saying oh, we, we'll we, we'll try to do a carve out for IVF next year? Um, does that pass muster with you, or, or does that make you feel any differently about how this has gone on? Nope. It doesn't yeah. change anything because it doesn't change the law itself. And in all honesty, this is just one area in which our healthcare system is being affected. And I don't want a carve out for IVF. All three of us don't want to carve out for IVF. We don't want to carve out for just the Jews. We want all of these laws overturned because the legislature that do not have medical degrees for the most part have no business in the doctor's office dictating what can and cannot be done for medical care. You can't get a DNC in this state right now if you need one, even if it has nothing to do with being pregnant. If your uterine lining doesn't fully um, exit your body on your period and is stuck in your body for several months and starts causing other issues, you can't go and get a DNC to have that cleaned out. That is basic medical care that has nothing to do with pregnancy. But I don't see a single procedure for men being this highly regulated. And and Robert, I'll point out, you know, there are over 50 pages in the, um, you know, Kentucky revised statutes related to abortion and reproductive care. So I, I don't have a lot of confidence that they're going to fix everything. I mean, obviously you hope for the best, but all we can do is deal with the laws as they are on the books right now, trying to piecemeal them together to give clients advice on what they can and can't do, give doctors advice on what they can and can't do. And that's extremely difficult right now. And as Lisa pointed out, even making an exception for IVF, I mean, are they going to write it in a way that, what does that mean? Is that exceptions at every genetic screen? Are they going to all of a sudden have fetal viability become an exception? I mean, we don't know. And, and these are all hypotheticals, but I, I don't have confidence in the legislature to fix 50 pages of abortion laws that date back to the Fletcher administration. Right. And I think, you know, a carve out for IVF certainly doesn't do anything to alleviate the issue of a high risk pregnancy or a miscarriage where with the abortion ban we have, you have doctors having to consult legal departments to determine if there's a substantial risk of death, you know, and if it's imminent. And so, um, or if you have an ectopic pregnancy, there have been 0% Mm -hmm. of ectopic pregnancies moved from the fallopian tube to the uterus and had a successful pregnancy. That's just not a thing. Yeah. 
Yeah. But it's guaranteed that you could kill the mother. Yep. If you don't remove the ectopic pregnancy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Of course, there are a million more pieces of this topic, and we could go on and on um, about all of this for, for days. But Lisa, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Aaron, thank you so much for talking to us about this case. Uh, we really appreciate um, all of the plaintiffs, all of the lawyers on this case, and we, uh, we're really glad that we were able to share your story. So uh, thank you guys both for coming onto the show. Thank you all. Yeah, thank you. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at MyOldKYPod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter. It comes out on Fridays. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Dimcast and the Ford Kentucky Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.